What should our model for humanity be? What should you and I be like? Because the thing is, when I look inside, I see quite a a confusing picture. Um, There's a mixture of thoughts and feelings. Some of what I think and want to do is fairly good and noble, and I'm quite pleased with at times. But other times, it's pretty shameful. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like if this weekend we arrived, and as you walked through the front door, they sort of presented you with this shoulder pack with a massive screen above your head and these electrodes. And what happens is every thought in your mind, every thought in your heart and your mind was immediately transferred and appeared broadcast in real time on the screen above your head for everybody else to see as we wandered around. Can you? How long would you stay here before <laughs> running? <laughs> yeah, actually, when we look inside, we are a mess. And we know we're not what we want to be or what we should be. Okay, so maybe we should look outside. When we look out, what what should our role models be? Um, just the new Bonds out Spectre, very good from what I hear. I haven't yet seen it, don't ruin it for me. But um, maybe, you know, Bond, he seems to be a role model for blokes. Hmm. Alcoholic sociopath who's incapable of holding down a relationship. Yeah, it might be fun to be Bond for an afternoon. I'm not sure you want to be Bond when you get to 60. <laughs> Or when you look back on your life. Uh, what about for, for girls? What's Who would your role model be? Now I'm in real danger. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Zoella? Uh, um, what's a chops? Gwyneth Paltrow? Her blog, everybody seems to... Have, um, no, I, well, maybe you need a, a role model for both. You know, Caitlyn Jenner? I mean, what, what do we do? Where, where do you look? You know, how, how, can, how can people as different as all of us find a role model for all of us to follow. I mean, it's ridiculous. Actually, the role model for humanity is not found in here or out there. It's found in one place for all of us, male, female, black, white, rich, poor, educated, ill-educated. It's Jesus Christ. He is our role model. And we'll never understand ourselves or our world, or other people properly, or our future, unless we understand and get our heads around who Jesus is and what he is like. Which brings us to a question, how did Jesus resist temptation? Luke 4, we looked at, he was 40 days in the wilderness, enduring the full force of the devil's temptations, the devil's full attention. And yet Hebrews 4.15 declares, he was tempted in every way, but did not sin. So how did Jesus manage to resist the temptation to sin in what he did and what he said and what he thought every second of every minute, of every hour, of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year, of every decade of his life? And I think that the answer we instinctively go for has to be wrong at this point. Now, we instinctively think, well, he was able to resist because, frankly, he was cheating. He's God. But that would make 1 Peter 2 a nonsense, because 1 Peter 2.21 says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. How can Peter say Jesus is an example to follow in avoiding sin, when he's nothing like us? has a power that you and I can't tap into. It's like telling me to follow the example of Superman in a weightlifting contest. In fact, asking me to follow anybody in a weightlifting contest is a little bit much, but there we go. Um, It's it's just unfair. 
he has resources we do not have. But the truth is he wasn't cheating. And this is why we're looking at Jesus for an entire talk in a weekend on humanity. He wasn't cheating because he was, and he is, amazingly, fully human. In fact, Jesus is the most human that anybody has ever been since Adam fell. And so we've got to understand Jesus to understand ourselves. We've got to understand the perfect model of humanity to understand our humanity. Okay, um, there's a couple of points there. Firstly, Jesus is fully man as well as fully God. Uh, Turn to Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll pick it up as the reading did in verse 5. So Hebrews chapter 2. Now the writer has just um, quoted Psalm 8 at the the beginning there, which we also read. It's a psalm about humanity's glorious role that we were hearing about yesterday. As made in the image of God, we reflect God and we represent him by ruling his world. But the psalm goes on, that's not exactly what we see now. We Look at verse 8. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to humanity. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to us. The world doesn't seem obedient and submissive to you and to me. But while humanity doesn't exercise the rule that we should have over the world, verse 9, Jesus does. He died our death so that by grace he might free us from death, verse 10. And he himself grew to maturity through suffering, verse 10 to 13. That's a sort of background for the bit I want to dig into, which is 14 to 18. So we don't exercise what we should do in relation to the world. We don't exercise God's rule because we've stuffed up. Jesus, however, steps in and he does. And he dies for us and he grows and he lives. And then 14 to 18. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. This is what C.S. Lewis calls the grand miracle. And it's more than just um, Emmanuel. It's not less than Emmanuel. The, The great word we hear so often at Christmas, God with us. This is not just God with us. This is God as one of us. It's an incredible truth. Uh, Verse 14, he shared our humanity. Jesus was and is fully human. Flesh and blood. Like we are flesh and blood. Just in case we've got doubts, verse 17 makes it clear. He was made like us, fully human in every way. Jesus wasn't like a human being or partially human being. He was fully, completely, 100% human being. He even suffered and struggled with temptation, verse 18, like you and like me. That just blows my mind. Jesus was tempted. He knows the, the, the sensation of temptation like you and I do. Turn over page uh, to chapter 4, verse 15. Referring again to Jesus, we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy or to sympathize for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are yet was without sin. 
So when Jesus was getting off the tube carriage on the way to work and somebody broke one of the most fundamental laws of the universe and tried to get on the carriage while they were getting off, before they got off and barged into him, he was tempted to swear under his breath. When Jesus saw someone he found really attractive, he was tempted to lust after them in his heart. When Jesus was rejected by the crowd and had nowhere to sleep and nothing to eat, he was tempted to grumble at God for letting him down. He was tempted, like you and me, because he was fully human. You see his humanity again um, just over in chapter 5, verse 7 to 9. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect or mature, became the source of eternal salvation. In other words, Jesus had to learn obedience through what he suffered. Or to put it, Starkly, at the age of 12, Jesus was not ready to go to the cross. At the age of 30, he might have done a runner in the Garden of Gethsemane rather than stay. Because he wasn't ready. He hadn't learned. He hadn't been trained through his smaller steps of suffering to face the big challenge. He had to grow and develop as a man. So that when that <coughs> night came in Gethsemane, and the disciples fell asleep. He did not get up and walk away, but he stayed. He had to grow through what he suffered as a man so that he might become mature and perfect, ready, so that when he was nailed to the cross, he didn't just stop the universe and go back to heaven. He was a full human being who, like us, grew and developed, who, like us, felt temptation. Fully God, fully man, one person two natures. Now there's um, it's a, one of the most important areas of theology is understanding Jesus, Christology and there are lots of technical terms for the ways people have misunderstood them but frankly I can never remember them but superheroes works for my simple little mind um, and judging this room I think you'll probably prefer that way than the other way. Um, so <laughs> I like to judge others by my own sloppy standards. Um, so I could tell you about Apollinarianism, Adoptionism, Docetism and Nestorianism, but I'd rather tell you about Hercules, Spider-Man, Superman and the Incredible Hulk. Because every superhero is, uh, is a failure to get Jesus. Our longing for a superhero really is actually our longing for uh, a saviour. But every superhero is sort of like Jesus, but shows us a misunderstanding of Jesus. So Hercules, which is Apollinarianism, Hercules is half God and half man. Jesus is not half God and half man somewhere between us. He is fully God and fully man. Um, Spider-Man, so a normal person and then something happens to him, he's bitten by the radioactive spider and he develops superpowers. (coughs) Jesus wasn't an ordinary man and then at his baptism, God adopted him and... um, put his divinity into him. He was always fully God and fully man from the moment of his conception. Superman uh, looks like an ordinary man, but is anything but ordinary. He wears his underpants on the outside of his trousers, and uh, and he has superpowers. Um, But Jesus is not God pretending to be a human being. Jesus is fully God and fully man. The Incredible Hulk is sometimes ordinary Bruce Banner and sometimes the huge green monster. Jesus is not, uh, sometimes he's God and sometimes he's man and sort of flicks between the two. No, he is always fully God and always fully man. 
one person with two natures. Very, very important that we understand who Jesus is. Two natures, fully human, fully divine, one person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, so perhaps that helps just to think in terms of practically, so how does he resist temptation? Imagine uh, another activity that I excel at, um, weightlifting and swimming. Um, I swim like a lead weight, uh, but imagine um, swimming across the channel, and uh, the person swimming, um, their friends say, look, we're worried you're going to drown. So what we're going to do is we're going to follow you in a safety boat. And the person swims across the channel, they get to the other side, uh, and they climb out, and they're sort of celebrating, and somebody says, oh, how on earth did you manage to get across the channel without drowning? And he said, well, I I swam. I trained hard. I trained and trained and trained until I was fit enough and strong enough and a good enough swimmer that I I could... Friend said, no, 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 you you didn't drown because we were in the boat. He said, yeah, but I never used the boat. I never needed to. I didn't rely on the boat. I relied on my ability to swim. Now, Jesus is God. God cannot be tempted, the Bible says. So in one sense, you think he couldn't have sinned. That's like the safety boat. But Jesus doesn't rely on the safety boat he swims. He, as a man, resists temptation. He never has to call on the safety boat. He just resists because he trusts God. And using the same resources that are available to you and to me, he stood where we fail. He possessed all the qualities of the divine son. The boat was always with him. But he chooses not to express them. He always possesses them. He chooses not to express them. Okay, we're going to concentrate on the implications of Jesus being human for our understanding of what it means to be human. Uh, But just before we get there, two very little, well, very major implications within Hebrews 2 of what it means that Jesus is fully human. So verses 14 and 17 of Hebrews 2, it means he can die in our place as our substitute. A man who is flesh and blood can take the place of men who are flesh and blood. Only a human can die for the sins of women and men, other humans. But only God could die for the sins of every human. And then secondly, in verse 18, he is able to help us as we struggle with temptation. So when you pray to Jesus in temptation, you pray to one who has relied on the same resources that are available to you. And one who understands what you feel as the pressure feels like it's growing and growing and growing. He can sympathise in our weakness. What a wonderful saviour. Okay, so far so good. Jesus is the true human. Um, David Wells writes that in Christ we see everything God intended Adam to become. He's everything that we should be. How does that help us? At the age of, uh, well, some time ago, uh, I was... uh, going out with my first ever girlfriend at the time. And I got a letter from her. And it said, um, I've, uh, I've seen a lot of your friend Adrian in the last few weeks. Adrian is kind. And Adrian is funny. And Adrian is nice to be around. If you were more like Adrian, I'd still be going out with you. <laughs> um, you see, it's actually not much help knowing a perfect ideal. Because you just look miserable compared with the perfect ideal. I'm glad to have been able to process this with you. Um, um, How is it helpful to you and to me to know Jesus is kind? Jesus resists temptation. Jesus obeys his father. And so should you. Oh. Well, Jesus helps us because he's not just the example of what we should be. 
he is also the architect's plan of what you and I will be if we trust in him. Or to use biblical language, he is the second Adam. See, Adam was the, the first Adam. He was the first human. He was our covenant head and representative. When Adam obeyed, all of humanity enjoyed the blessings. But when Adam disobeyed, all of humanity fell. And now every human on this earth is born sharing Adam's stain, his sin, his corruption. Romans 5 verse 12 puts it this way. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. But if we put our trust in Jesus, then our destiny is not tied with the first Adam, in whose image, as we saw yesterday, all humanity is then made, but to the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 47. The first man, Adam, was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. As is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. Here you go. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. So David Wells comment that in Christ we see everything that God intended Adam to become is gloriously true, but it's only half true. In Christ we don't just see everything God intended Adam to become, we see all that Adam's children will be if we trust in him. See, the great problem for humanity at the moment is that the best we can do is affirm what we are. You're good, you're wonderful. But Christianity enables us not just to affirm what we are, but to promise what we will be because of who Jesus is. He is the model of what we will be as well as what we should be. And this is where I actually I got quite excited uh, with the, the oddly titled last point as I prepared the talk. 1 John 3, 1-2 and the irony of Genesis 3, 5. Time to concentrate even harder for, for five minutes. Turn down the heating. No, not even no further. Um, three questions. Why does Jesus give such odd rewards? Luke 19, 17-19, the parable of the miners. Uh, Matthew 25, 21. 1 Corinthians 6, 2-3 that we looked at a few weeks ago. We will judge angels and rule the world uh, Jesus we're all hoping to retire to a condo in Florida and play golf or some version of that Jesus promises that in eternity we won't retire and say they'll give us response who wants more responsibility right now in their life and yet Jesus says here your great reward for serving me is uh, be in charge of three cities or ten cities great transport infrastructure tax goodness Really, I was hoping to retire. <laughs> why is it? Why is it that Jesus can promise his reward, responsibility? Secondly, why does Genesis one twenty eight use such a strong word for how Adam is to relate to creation? Subdue the earth. That's that's not a gentle word. And thirdly, why is Satan's temptation in Genesis three five so very very ironic? So in Genesis three five, uh, Satan tempts Adam and Eve, and this is what he says. God knows when you eat the fruit from that tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. (coughs) It's ironic for two two reasons. Firstly, it's ironic because eating the fruit doesn't elevate humanity to be like God. It actually drags us down to be more like beasts than humans. 
But the greater irony is that what Satan is tempting and offering Adam and Eve and telling them, steal this, is precisely what God was going to freely give us. Satan is saying, steal what God is going to freely give. Adam wants to become like God, but it becomes less than God. But listen to 1 John 3, 1 to 2. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. That is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. One day, you and I will be transformed and we will become as like God as created beings can be. We will become as like God as created beings can be. That is our destiny. It's the very thing that Adam grasped after and yet God freely promises it and gives it. Okay, so that's the answer to question three. Why is Satan's temptation so ironic? What about the first two questions? Now, I've got to be careful here. I'm slightly... uh, pushing on a little past what is clear to what I think the implications are. I think, I think, at the end of Genesis 2, you've got a beautiful, bountiful garden in Eden. And then outside of the hedge, the topiary hedge of Eden, you have a raw, wild world. It is good, but it is raw, untamed. Not evil, but raw. And humanity's gloriously noble, exciting job is to subdue the disordered wild world and bring it to the fruitfulness and beauty and bounty and order of the garden. That's why I enjoy the washing up. I take a disordered bowl and bring to it order and calm. It's my little reflection of what God wants me to do. Um, Anyway, um, I wonder if we get a little hint of this, of what Adam should have been doing in Jesus' earthly ministry. So you've got this wild storm going nuts. People about to drown in a boat. Jesus stands up and says, be still. Dead calm. Jesus subdues disordered creation and brings it to calm. I wonder, is that just a little picture? In one sense, that's what's going on with Jesus' early ministry, a picture of what the kingdom of God will be like. And I wonder if it's a picture of what Adam should have been doing going out into the world and bringing order and calm and garden to the wild. <coughs> well, you can understand then why Jesus' rewards aren't a retirement villa in heaven, heaven's version of a Florida country club, but rather responsibility to go out into a new creation and to bring order, to rule over it. How exciting. If that is the case, which I think it is, that you and I will, take, will spend eternity going out into a raw, young, fresh universe to bring peace and order and God's fruitfulness, to bring maturity to what is ready for, for, for us to, to enjoy. See, that's a job to get out of bed for. It's a job to enjoy. I don't know what you think the most exciting job in the world is. Um, the encouraging <coughs> news is that um, it's not too late for any of us. Uh, I saw a 43-year-old last week changed his job, and he now has, a uh, 43-year-old Brit, has the best job title in Britain. So when he get, fills in forms, he gets to put under the, you know, the, the box, uh, what is your, your job title? Uh, Timothy Peake now writes, astronaut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, 
in the bar after work, everybody says, so what do you do? Oh, I'm vice president of uh, at this bank. I'm an executive senior vice president. To the, I'm an astronaut. <laughs> <laughs> that's just end of, really, isn't it? <laughs> but actually, that's utterly nothing compared with what humans will do in the new creation. We will rule. We will judge angels. We will go out into the new universe. We will explore it. We will subdue it. We will bring God's order and fruitfulness to it. And that is what Adam could, should have had and lost. But it is what you and I will have as we're transformed into the likeness of God. So the Bible's vision for humanity is not seen fully in Adam and Eve or in you and me, but only in the new man, Jesus Christ. And this has enormous implications for our understanding of some of the most fundamental issues of life and pressing matters in our culture, seeing that the model of perfect humanity is Jesus. Now, there are three ways that I think this this blows apart lots of our thinking and really cuts against the grain of our culture. Firstly, the single life. Now, Jesus' life was a single life, although that, I hate that term because it's so stupidly inaccurate. He was single in the sense he wasn't romantically involved with anybody. He never married or had a, an affair, but he was never lonely. He shared his life with his biological family, and he shared life with 12 disciples that he invested in, with a group of women who often travelled with him and were his support. Uh, Luke 8, 1 to 3 talks about them. And in particular with his three closest mates, Peter, James and John, his best friend on the world, on the earth. Jesus was single in that silly sense of that silly word, but he was never lonely. And I think that's a huge challenge in our culture. A couple of weeks ago, there was a stir when a Polish priest in the Vatican uh, stood up and announced himself to the world's press with his partner and said... um, I'm gay, this is my partner. What was really interesting was his choice of words. He said, I need to I need to come out and say this is happening and this is good, because he said, total abstinence from a life of sexual love is inhuman. It's very, very interesting. And there was no pushback in the mainstream media to his definition of inhuman. That an abstinence of sexual love was what he was talking about, is inhuman. We live in such a sexualized culture that that was just accepted. Yeah, okay. No one questioned whether having sex is really necessary to a full human life. But if a life without sexual love is inhuman, if a life without a romantic partner is inhuman, then Jesus' life was not fully human. It is not the church. It is not the Bible that's unhealthy on this. It's our culture. I mean, you see it. Um, have you seen the Hobbit movies? I mean, they're incredibly long. Incredibly long. And it's not just because the books are ridiculously long. It is also because, well, we can't just have a movie about um, camaraderie and friendship. We, we have to shoehorn in all these extra scenes of love interest. They're nowhere near the books. But our culture, how can you have a, how can you have a movie, a, a story, without, without people hooking up? I mean, it's just ridiculous. And so they made the ridiculously long Lord of the Rings and Hobbit movies even longer just because we can't get our heads around friendship. We have to have romance. But it's not just a challenge that, you know, for out there, the stupid world that doesn't understand things. I think in the church we can be very stupid on this as well. See, marriage is a wonderful gift and we should celebrate it in church. We should celebrate all God's good gifts. 
but marriage is not ultimate. And the danger is that, um, I guess we wouldn't say anything quite as crass as um, that Polish priest said, but the way that we talk about marriage, I think, sometimes gives the impression you just can't be happy and live a full life unless you get married. But here's the thing, if marriage was that good, why isn't the marriage in heaven? Heaven is the place of perfection, and yet Jesus says, Luke twenty thirty five, no marriage in heaven. It can't be that good. If sex was that good, and heaven is the place of perfection, why is there no sex in heaven? Marriage is just a sign, a shadow, a hint of the glorious reality to come. And so in the new creation, we won't have those things because we won't need them. We'll have the reality, which is so much better. Marriage is good. Celebrate marriage as a church. Let's stop talking as if it's ultimate, as if it's the thing without which you can't live a human life. Singleness is not living half a life unless you, you want to say Jesus only lived half a life. It's not being left on the shelf unless you want to say, yeah, Jesus is left on the shelf. It's not second best unless you want to say Jesus' life utterly unfulfilled, bit of a failure. In Jesus, I think it's one of the most wonderful things. We see the single life affirmed as a full life. A life of a man of, of joy and purpose and fulfilment. Secondly, in Jesus we see the fully human life is the self-sacrificial life. So three times in Mark, Jesus talks about going to die on the cross and then calls afterwards his disciples to follow him. Take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me. So Mark 10.45, 9.35, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. A commentator, Wade Clark Roof, writes, he says, there's been a radical shift in Christian writing from an ethic of self-denial to an ethic of self-fulfillment. And I think, I see this um, uh, sometimes in my rock and roll life, I look at other church websites, and, you know, try and work out, you know, okay, what, how, do, how do churches write about themselves? Uh, what things um, should we you know, provide on our website, that sort of thing. And one of the interesting things is the kind of vision statements of churches. And so often you read stuff like helping you fulfill your destiny in this generation, or unlocking your unique potential and the plan that God has for you. Now, neither of those are wrong things. But they are me-centered things. They, they do sort of build into this... <coughs> ingrown toenail view of life that just we we just we just see everything including god as there really to serve me church is about god helping me find my destiny god helping me unlock my potential rather than me being as oswald chambers put it fuel for the fire of god's glory happy to be burned up if it makes jesus shine brighter jesus shows the fullest life is a life given in service of others. I always think of um, a couple I may have talked about, Alan and Patricia, um, at previous church I was at. Uh, there was a, a girl from a Muslim family who was converted, a young girl just out of university, converted, and uh, she got home to find her brother had found out she was converted, and he'd literally just thrown all her belongings out of the first floor window, and they were just on the street. And... She was in a state, um, she was quite an emotional type anyway, she was a blubbering wreck, had no idea what to do. And uh, so she got in contact with me, and I was I had even less of an idea what to do. I was thinking, you know, gosh, is this safe? 
um, what are our family going to try and do? How do we look after it? I just had no idea what to do. So I phoned around the elders and said, look, can somebody take her in? And there's this couple, Alan and Patricia, who wanted to have kids for years. They haven't had kids and um, and quite a bit. Were able to enjoy lots of nice holidays. They basically had, they would love to have had kids, but they had a very nice life. Because <coughs> they had very few responsibilities, really, and a great disposable income. Could you possibly take this girl in? Now, at that point, they were faced with a choice. To take her in might bring risk to themselves, because who knows what her parents or family might try to do. It's going to bring huge inconvenience, discomfort, cost, and emotional mess with this blubbering wreck whose world has just fallen apart. Which way do you go at that point? It doesn't fit my, my vision statement for my life right now. I don't think this is part of my unique calling. I'm not sure this is my gifting. I'm not sure this is the destiny God has. They were Christians. They said, yeah, we'll take her. We've got to spare him with And it was a fairly hectic few months for them. <laughs> Their life was turned upside down. A year later, uh, she got married. And uh, one of the, it was one of those times when there, was, there seemed to be an outbreak of hay fever in the church. Because I'm a man, I don't cry. But um, there was something. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I noticed an awful lot of other guys as well. As Alwyn stood at the front and said, look, I never thought um, I'd have a daughter uh, to give away. A year ago, I didn't even know her name, and now she had asked me to be her father and give her away in church. And I tell you what, he got far more out of taking her in than she got out of being taken in. They pressed into a life of self-sacrifice rather than pressing away from difficulty. And they found richness and blessing and fulfillment <coughs> is found by giving, not taking. The single life, the self-sacrificial life are modelled in Jesus as full and rich and the submissive life. And again, Jesus gives the lie to the spirit of our age. As Jesus uh, talks with his disciples after he's been in discussion with the woman at the well in John 4, verse 34, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. God himself, God the Son, ruler of the heavens, creator of the endless universe, what is your life about? Oh, it's about serving my father and submitting to his work. <coughs> if submission is degrading and demeaning and pathetic, then Jesus, the Son of God, the divine Son, is degraded, demeaned, and pathetic. But he talks openly of his delight in giving himself <coughs> to submit to the will of his father. As I said, yes, sir, you never once hear in scripture of the father submitting to the son, or obeying the son, or being sent by the son, and yet... The Son is fully equal, fully deserving of worship. It doesn't make the Son any less than the Father, that he submits to the Father. And there is an obvious application as we think about what the Bible says about uh, roles within marriage and in church. But it's not just about um, wives within marriage. Actually, it's much broader than that. It's a, The reason our culture struggles with it in marriage is because we struggle with it everywhere. And all of us feel the... Uh, the revulsion, maybe that's too strong. All of us feel the reaction against submission. None of us want to do what others tell us to. None of us want to give ourselves to the vision of somebody else. The Bible models in Jesus Christ, that in whatever context we're called to submit, it is not beneath me. 
it is not demeaning to me unless it was beneath and demeaning to Jesus. Actually, a life submitted to the good authorities God has given us, the good structures God has placed, is a good and a rich life, whether those authority and structures are within the state, the family, or the church. Look, you and I are um, made in the image of God and therefore beautiful and valuable as we are. But we're fallen and marred and sinful. We're conflicted and confused. We're full of insecurities and guilt and shame and baggage and hidden sins. And we battle and we struggle and we often fail. And to be honest, life can be draining and demoralizing. But God promises one day it will be different. And it's not just a vacuous, you know, pie-in-the-sky promise. The promise is grounded in a person, Jesus Christ. God says, he is my architect's model. And I am making you to be like him. If you want to know what the perfect human looks like, look to Jesus. If you want to be filled with hope, look to the promise that one day you will be like him. The man, Jesus Christ, is our hope. He is our future. And he is our glory. We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Our Father, we thank you for this this scarcely believable promise that one day we will be as like you as it is possible to be while still being creatures. In the meantime, Father, help us not to believe uh, the lies that uh, we tell ourselves and that we're told by others of what we should be of what humanity is. Thank you instead. We are shown in Jesus Christ all that we can be and all that we will be. Help us to love and worship him, to delight in him, to honour him, and help us to long to be more like him. Amen.